Hello and welcome. I am Lee Unkrich, the director of COCO. I'm Adrian Molina. I'm the co-director and the screenwriter on COCO. And I am Darla K. Anderson, the producer of COCO. Really early on, we thought it would be fun to do a mariachi version of the Disney Castle logo. We did it just for fun while we were making the movie, and then we ended up loving it so much we decided to keep it in the film. Everyone really loved it. It stayed in Sticking. Yeah. the whole time. I remember the first time it came on, people were so excited about it, and it really set the tone for our movie. We tried starting the movie lots of different ways, right? We had a version where we started in an old De La Cruz movie, and then we finally revealed Miguel watching it. We had one that was a big musical number that turned out to be this giant stage show where De La Cruz was performing. And they were all fun openings, but in every case, we felt like it was taking too long to meet Miguel. And we also found that by learning as much about Miguel's family history, right at the top of the movie, it kind of set the table well for the story ahead. We ended up telling that story kind of through this... 2D Papel Picado animation, which was an idea we had very early on, and it took us a while to figure out just kind of the right place to use it, but uh, I'm glad it ended up in the film because we always thought it would be clever. It was also helpful to us from a storytelling standpoint. Yeah, we needed to hide the identity of this guy who left the family, and this became a really good way to give it that feeling of a kid who heard this story but never actually knew who this person was. So that became really helpful for hiding different secrets that get revealed over the course of the film. These gorgeous paper banners are called papel picado, which I believe literally means a paper with holes cut in it. You see them everywhere down in Mexico. We saw that a lot in our travels. And in an earlier version of the story, we actually had a, a song in the middle of the film where Mami Melda was talking about her sad story of being left by her husband. And for the same reasons Adrian just discussed, we thought, oh, that would be perfect to do it through papel picado because then we can disguise his true identity. We ended up cutting that, and we were all really bummed because we thought it was such a cool idea. So when we then realized that we needed to open the film differently, we resurrected the idea and brought it to its fruition. We put together a great, tight little team of folks to, uh, they just kind of splintered off and did that project kind of separately from the animation on the rest of the film. Then her grandkids got roped in. As her family grew, so did the business. Music had torn her family apart, but shoes held them all together. You see that woman? Here we see the ofrenda with that guy's face ripped out, which again is an important story point. We visited so many families down in Mexico all over. This really is an amalgamation of all the different beautiful ofrendas that we saw during our travels. And her little girl? She's my great-grandmother, Mama Coco. Hola, Mama Coco. How are you? I love that first scene of Miguel with Mama Coco when he's so sweet to her and he gives her the little orange slice. It tells you so much about their relationship and his kindness and it's a great way to physically meet our character. Abuelita was kind of a tricky character for us to figure out just how to play her because we wanted her to be kind of antagonistic, forced to Miguel, you know, play her as the stern grandmother. But we also wanted her to be really loving. And there was a lot of back and forth. Sometimes in some versions she would be too loving and there was no conflict. And in other versions she was so harsh that people wondered, like, why would Miguel ever want to live in this family? We settled that whenever she's angry, it's more that she's concerned for her grandson's soul, not so much that she's angry at him personally. And we tried to play 
enjoy the humor of her turning on a dime from being really, really angry to being really, really loving. And my family's fine with that. But me? Be back by lunch, Miko. Love you, Mama. We always knew that music would be a huge part of the storytelling, and a lot of this we recorded in Mexico, some traditional songs, some of Michael Giacchino's cues, to try to build this kind of mosaic of different sounds you might hear in a, in a town as musical as Miguel's. You can see we snuck in a uh, pepita there on the left. This is something that my, my kids have done with our dog Waffles for many years. This is their little litany of sit, down, roll over. Coming up, you're going to see another little Easter egg in the piñatas. We saw lots of uh, Pixar character piñatas when we were down in Mexico. They're everywhere. I'll go in piñata stores in Mexico City, and they'll, I swear like 90% of the piñatas in the store are Pixar characters. This very plaza, the young Ernesto de la Cruz took his first steps toward becoming the most beloved singer in Mexican history. We tried to be as efficient as possible as we could with setting up De La Cruz and his legend and why Miguel loves him so much. And so it was fun coming up with all these different old movie clips. This next section here where we see De La Cruz singing Remember Me, this actually used to be part of a much bigger sequence that we opened the film with where we saw a whole concert in the supper club. And what's remaining in the finished film here is just kind of the back half of that original performance. All of this dancing, the animators, actually, we brought in some dance consultants and they all got to put on the dresses and learn these folklorico dances. And, and it really is a great way to, to see it all appear on screen. It was fun to see all the men and women in the skirts mm -hmm. working it out. <laughs> and Benjamin Bratt knocking out the song here. When we first hired him, he said, you know, I'm not really a singer. And I'm like, that's okay. De La Cruz is a great showman, and I know you can pull that off. He'll be fantastic. So he had, he had a blast singing. He uh, blew us all away. Yeah. It was pretty gutsy of us to kill De La Cruz from the beginning and to have that bell drop on him. I mean, I think people are pretty shocked. I think it fits into the celebration of the holiday, though, which is, you know, with a little kind of tongue-in-cheek, a little irreverence, it sets the tone for, for death being a thing, but not necessarily the scariest. It's always funny in screenings because people want to laugh. You can feel it. They want to laugh, but they're also like, well, should I be laughing at that? I could, too, if it wasn't for my family. Ay, 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 muchacho. Huh? I asked for a shoe shine, not your life story. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I like how when you meet the mariachi, he's playing a little bit of, of Yorona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tiny, tiny little setup for later on in the film. A little touch of that. The mariachi is played by a great character actor named Lombardo Boyar, who we found and we loved him so much that we ended up giving him two different parts in the film because he plays both the mariachi and he also plays Gustavo, the musician who tells them about De La Cruz's party and the uh, talent show. I, I like to imagine that Gustavo is actually this guy's great-great-grandfather. <laughs> it's all in the family. Yeah. There you go. Musical genes. <laughs> it's funny how the, the characters do start taking on their the actor's persona, and I thought the same thing, that they're for sure related. Have fun making shoes. Come on, what did De La Cruz always say? Moment. Kudos to the team that did all the crowd work. They just did an incredible job filling and populating Santa Cecilia as well as the Land of the Dead in a really natural, believable way. And then one of the great results of working with our fantastic cultural consultants is that they turned us on to the idea of la chancla, or a slipper, which is a much-feared weapon of Latina grandmothers in Mexico and beyond. Shame on you. 
And it just makes sense, them coming from a shoe family. It was one of those kind of serendipitous, it was already kind of there. Having uh, Abuelita put her chancla back on kind of in this gunslingery kind of way was kind of a callback to when we used to have her carry a wooden spoon around with her in, in her apron string, kind of like a gun. We had her kind of wield it like a six-shooter. That idea kind of stayed with us here when we used the chancla instead of the wooden spoon. Is crawling with mariachis. Yes. Dante is great because you would see all these sholo dogs, kind of street dogs around town. and On our research trips. On our research trips, and this became kind of a, a perfect scrappy companion for Miguel. Sholo dogs are the national dog of Mexico, and they've been around for thousands of years. Some people think they're ugly. Some people think they're cute. <laughs> I've grown to like them. I mean, they're sweet. They're just dogs. They can't help it that they were born without hair. I think they're strikingly beautiful. A musician's shoes. <gasps> In Mexico, we went to visit a shoe shop very much like the outfit that the Riveras have here and got to talk to the guy and, and talk about the pride and the joy he got out of making shoes. He had a couple of younger kids working there, and they seemed miserable <laughs> uh, polishing, staining some leather. So it's nice to get multi-generations and how they all feel about the business. The last thing I think Miguel wants is to imagine the rest of his life spent working in this shoe shop. No one's going anywhere. Tonight is about family. It was a tall order, the, the front end of this film, and went through a lot of different versions because there was a lot to set up, right? I mean, Adrian knows this more than anyone who spent a lot of time trying to crack the story. From the family backstory to the rules of the holiday to the rules that are specific to this film, when we get to the land of the dead, it's just a ton, and to make it all feel natural. So it doesn't feel like you're just being spoon-fed exposition. Yeah, it's a tall order. Yeah, and it took us, for the writers out there listening to this, you know, don't give up. <laughs> we did lots and lots and lots of passes of the section of the film before we finally settled on this and hopefully it works for people we worked really hard to get the ofrenda culturally accurate and a lot of the items on the ofrenda one of the most important things is a glass of water because we believe the family members are making the journey and after the journey they need to have water to refresh themselves when we were designing Mama Coco, we, we tried to find pictures of, like, the oldest people that we could possibly find that just had, like, roadmaps of wrinkles on their faces. And, and one of the big inspirations for us was our first writer, Matt Aldrich, described her as a living raisin. And that just seemed like the perfect way to describe her. And that's actually what I think of every time I see her now. On the ofrenda, there is a little pepita-colored cat you see in some of the shots. You see her at the end as a, a little street cat, and we imagine that she's been around for a while since Mama Melda's day. There's a little nod here to my favorite movie, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. There's the axe from the movie in the stump, and behind it is a, a barrel, a red barrel, a red drum, they, they pointed out to me. In the review, Chris Bernardi said, Lee, what do you see there? A drum. What color is it? Red. Ah, uh, red drum, get it. <laughs> this was a, a sequence that came together, I wouldn't say early, but early-ish, and it ended up being real tentpole for us. We spent a lot of time early on trying to figure out how to effectively communicate Miguel's love for music, and we had scene after scene of him talking about it, and it always felt phony and like words that wouldn't be coming out of a kid's mouth. And Plus, how do you really describe a feeling like that without it sounding kind of corny? So Adrian had this brilliant idea, and he communicated the concept to me originally by putting together just 
just a little montage, an audio montage of old Mexican movie clips and bits of guitar playing and score kind of swelling in. And it, it just really beautifully and effectively showed the potential for how to communicate Miguel's love of music emotionally. What I've always loved about working here at Pixar and working on this film is that sometimes you use writing to solve a problem, sometimes you use drawing to solve a problem. In this case, it was using audio to really figure out how we're going to sell this feeling. And, you know, as filmmakers, I say everything at your disposal. This is kind of where we begin to see the legend of De La Cruz unfold. And, you know, we wanted him to be this movie star from the golden age of Mexican cinema and started thinking really on how can we use these movie clips to say something about the person he was and the person Miguel aspires to be. And we had to use these clips a lot in the film, so we had to think of a... Like what the movies were that they came from. Exactly, all the, the plot lines and everything, so that whenever they came up, it would fit into our storytelling. We watched a lot of classics of uh, Mexican cinema to inspire us. It was really important to me from the beginning that since there was going to be a lot of musical instrument playing in the movie, that we do it as realistically as possible. We've all seen movies where people pretend to play instruments who don't really play, and you can always tell, especially people who actually play instruments. So we took great care to film all our musicians. We strapped GoPros onto their guitars and shot lots of reference footage of the playing so that the animators could study that and, and make Miguel and all the other characters play really, really realistically. There's an angle coming up here that it's kind of subtle, but I, I like the idea of placing one of the De La Cruz posters over Miguel's shoulder so that when he's playing and kind of lost in his bliss in the reverie of guitar playing, that it would feel like De La Cruz was kind of looking over him like a guardian angel. I had to have faith in my dream. No one was going to hand it to me. It was up to me to reach for that dream, grab it tight, and make it come true. No more hiding, Dante. I gotta seize my. I always love this cut when Miguel says, I'm gonna play in Mariachi Plaza if it kills me. And then you cut to a bunch of kids' faces painted like skeletons. The little twin boys, it was originally a boy and a girl. We actually modeled a girl, and at a certain point I realized, hey, they should really be identical twins. It would be a nice echo of Tio Oscar and Tio Felipe in the Land of the Dead. And so we decided to make two little boys and we did that by doing a quick copy paste <laughs> they're actually identical models we just changed their clothes a little bit we saved 10 bucks on that one <laughs> what are their names oh manny and ben <laughs> this was always a tough scene to get right because you know miguel has all this hope to play in the plaza and we needed his family to shut him in to trap him and so putting it at the ofrenda became this perfect place but the balancing act of him having the guitar and worrying about being caught and then being trapped in this future of being a shoemaker just took a lot of rewrites to get it just right i had to rewrite this probably every time we screened and we had to reboard it and we had to do the dialogue again <laughs> it's a lot of doing and redoing when you make these movies A shoemaker through and through. That's my boy! <laughs> There's a good example coming up here of how our research trips fed into the story. 
We were with a family down in Mexico, sitting in their ofrenda room and partaking of the great food that they were giving us. And I noticed that this basset hound, the family dog, kept sneaking into the ofrenda room and was trying to eat a muffin off the ofrenda. And the mother and the family kept shooing the dog out, and then the dog would sneak back in behind her and try to get the food off the ofrenda again. And I kind of filed that one away, hoping that we'd find a spot for it in the movie. And so that's how we ended up with Dante climbing up on the ofrenda. And here it is. <laughs> big reveal. The big reveal. We went through so many different versions of how to reveal the musician. I mean, there were versions where he had the guitar the whole time. There were versions where he wasn't even in the photo and Miguel folded it open and found there was another person in it. In all these different permutations of trying to figure out kind of the web of, of, <laughs> of the storytelling and what we wanted Miguel to know or not know, it took a while to come get to this spot of, of just having uh, De La Cruz's guitar get revealed there when the photo opens up. In all of his excitement to pronounce himself a musician, we have Miguel throw off his apron, kind of just a little subtle expression of him not wanting to be saddled with his family's future. I don't think his parents take it as the way he intends it. Keep seeing the, his family and the character design of all of Miguel's family is just so perfect, just also appealing. So many of the designs came from our character designer, Danny Ariaga's own family. And he was constantly bringing in photos of his family and referencing them in his designs. And so they came from a real, very real place. I also love the lighting in this scene. I love this kind of just after sunset feeling. Danielle Feinberg, our director of photography for lighting, had this idea to put this kind of green fluorescent glow coming from the kitchen. It was something she had seen in our travels down in Mexico, and I, I just think it's so gorgeous. There. No guitar, no music. You'll notice that when we're in the land of the living, most of the time it's daytime, and when we're in the land of the dead, it's always night, and we definitely wanted that contrast. The one exception in the land of the living was here. In our research, a lot of the Day of the Dead celebration takes place during nighttime when families go out to the cemetery, so we wanted to show that moment. Just capture the beauty of that. We tried a lot to get that feeling of in the cemetery, it's quiet and somber, and out in the streets, it's a big party. There's music, there's face paint. It just kind of immerses you in, in these details. A lot of this music here that we hear in the plaza was the result of a big week-long trip we did down to Mexico that was coordinated by one of our music consultants, Camilo Lara. He got together all these amazing musicians who play in all different styles, from mariachi to San Jorosho to trio to banda, to all these great groups, and we recorded lots of music, some original stuff and some old standards with the intent of kind of sprinkling them all over the film. And that band playing in the grandstand was one of the groups that we recorded. Mono Blanco. Mono Blanco, yeah. yeah. They were great. Great, great grandfather? What am I supposed to do?
this gorgeous set and the lighting the the modeling everything here really perfectly captures the feeling of so many of the cemeteries that we visited down in mexico i remember there was a particularly large cemetery in oaxaca that we spent time at that this just really feels just like it to me and of course we had to make uh, de la cruz's tomb his mausoleum kind of the most incredible thing in the cemetery because he's the beloved son of the town so we looked at a lot of the tombs of beloved mexican musicians and uh, looked at how they were revered and tried to top them even because we wanted de la cruz to be the most famous singer ever to come out of mexico There were a few scenes that stayed pretty much the same from our very first screening to our very last, and this is one of them. Dean Kelly, the artist who boarded it, really captured that mystical, magical feeling. The details kind of moved around a bit, but we always loved this kind of unholy act, this grave robber scene that forces all of Miguel's troubles to come to a head. In earlier versions of the movie, when Miguel took the guitar and strummed it, the guitar was magically transported with Miguel, and he ended up having the guitar with him in the Land of the Dead. And in that version of the story, Miguel was trying to get to De La Cruz so that De La Cruz could strum the guitar and send him back home again. It was kind of a ball and chain, having to yeah. have Miguel drag it around all the time. And I know the animators were particularly not happy about the idea of Miguel having to have a guitar strapped to his back through the entire film, so they were happy when we told them that we were changing the story and Miguel was going to be leaving the guitar behind. Can you imagine if we had had to do that? <laughs> that would have been onerous. That's Adrian's cameo in the film right there. Saying the guitar, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> the animators actually built a big oversized guitar out of cardboard that was kind of roughly what the scale of the guitar would be to Miguel so that they could kind of work out the physicality of what it would be like for a kid of Miguel's size to be holding and playing a grown-up sized guitar. We did see animators running around the hallways trying to figure out how they were going to figure that out. Shout out also to the effects on this film. I think this, more than any of the films I've worked on, effects were such an important part of the storytelling. What is this magic thing going to look like? What's this blessing going to look like? How are these petals going to swirl and glow? And, and how are people going to be ghosts? We depend on the effects in this film for a lot of the storytelling, and I just think they did such a lovely job. This woman who helps Miguel out of the grave is a nod to Katrina, who's a, a classic skeletal character that was originally drawn by Jose Guadalupe Posada. We thought for the very first skeleton that we meet, it would be fun to have it be Katrina. Do you mind? I think when people hear, oh, it's a movie about skeletons or it's a movie about Day of the Dead, oftentimes they assume, oh, it's meant to be a horror or a Tim Burton film or something like that. And so, yeah, we really wanted to be in the spirit of the Day of the Dead, which is more about connection, more about family, and less about scaring people. So we tried to make the skeletons, their designs, as appealing as possible. And one of the decisions I made very early on was to give them eyeballs, which you normally wouldn't see in a skeleton. But, you know, I just knew that we needed to connect with all of these characters and connect with their souls. And I just couldn't imagine how we would do that effectively if none of them had eyeballs. Eyes are the window to the soul. Yep, you said it, sister. 
You know who we haven't mentioned yet is Anthony Gonzalez. Oh, yeah. He's our incredible voice of Miguel. When we're working out the story on these films, we put together story reels and we have temporary voices that are usually just done by employees at Pixar. But for Miguel, who was originally named Marco, I, I just really wanted to have a real kid playing him just so that it would feel real. And so we had a we had another young boy in to do uh, Marco's voice for a few years. And, and unfortunately, his voice started to change because we were taking so long making the movie. So we then had to find another kid to do the scratch. And we found uh, Anthony Gonzalez. He came up to do scratch and we ended up just falling in love with him and uh, he turned out to be an amazing singer and just was a fantastic kid. And so he became our Miguel and just really carries this entire movie in a way that kids rarely have to do. We did a lot of research before we started even creating the story of this film, and this is one of those moments where I think it really paid off. This idea of marigold paths guiding the skeletons home just really lent itself to this spectacular idea of a bridge made out of marigolds that connects the two worlds. And some of the earlier concept paintings, the bridge was a more ornate wrought iron looking bridge that was made out of petals, but it had that kind of design and then one of our artists Robert Kondo did a painting of this more ethereal organic bridge with the petals just kind of raining down and I instantly fell in love with it and never looked back. I remember when I was on the stage and hearing Michael's score come together with this moment, I just felt like, oh my gosh, this is our movie. This image and, and this sound and these colors, this just felt like it wrapped up the feeling of the film so completely. Yeah, Michael Giacchino threw himself into this totally. I mean, he was, he was so passionate about doing this film. He, he loved it from the very beginning, and he teamed up with Jermaine Franco to really create a score that was as emotionally effective as his scores always are, but also had an air of authenticity. Are those alebrijes? But those are real alebrijes. Spirit creatures. They guide souls on their journey. Watch your steps. They make caquitas everywhere. Welcome back to the land of the dead. Please have all offerings ready for re-entry. Welcome back. That guy stamping the papers there at the counter is another one of our cultural consultants, Octavio Solis. That's his voice. We try to find little cameos for a lot of the people that we worked with on the film. You're about to see John Ratzenberger's cameo in the film. We always give John a, a character or a moment in each of our films, and this is what we did for Coco. Juan Orthodontia. John Orthodontics. <laughs> is that an homage to your father, Adrian? Oh, yeah, my dad is a dentist, so. Oh, and the dentist, a friend of that you see on the screen, is actually the dentist's office from Finding Nemo. We imagine Hector tries to get across the bridge in any number of wacky ways every year, and this just happens to be the year that he tries to disguise himself as Frida Kahlo. Again, from a storytelling standpoint, this was one of those like weird ideas that became necessary in creating the stakes of this film. We've set up that you need a photo on an ofrenda, but it took a while to figure out what this process was of crossing back to the land of the living and who could go and who couldn't and what enforces it. Ultimately, I really like this idea. It came midway in the game of the bridge just not letting you across. So it's not a malicious thing. It's Nobody's doing it. It's just kind of the way the universe works and a really cool visual way to, to sell that idea. 
And this is also a, just a way to introduce Hector's character, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, in a fun way where you don't quite notice that you're meeting a new character because he's not going to show up again for a while. Anything to declare? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> Hola. This space here, which we called the Marigold Grand Central Station, was modeled after a lot of different places, but primarily the, the central post office in Mexico City. You notice in the wrought iron work, there are a lot of skulls, and kind of in the railings, there are little hidden skulls. And there's a lot of mix of kind of that Victorian iron work with also these kind of ancient Mesoamerican design motifs. You'll see that all over the world. When this scene was first storyboarded, the computer that Imelda beats with her shoe was drawn as a Macintosh. We imagined the land of the dead would be filled with technology that was likewise dead. Right. It was kind of as a joke in the story reels, and we actually designed a whole elaborate kind of steampunky computer to have on her desk, but then we ended up deciding to go back to the Mac. It's just, it's fun to have some outdated technology in the world. We never made it to the ofrenda. What? We ran into a... Miguel? Mama Imelda. What is going on? You the Rivera family? Here we've got this little clerk played by Gabriel Iglesias, a.k.a. Fluffy. I love the voice that he gave this character. He's got a lot of exposition to give, and to bring it up with humor was perfect. This is a good time to shout out to all of the actors we have in this film. The ensemble of the family just became this wonderful playground of different voices and different characters, and it really brings this family to life. He just looks like a plain old dog or a sausage someone dropped in a barbershop. One of my favorite little details in the movie is in this scene. If you look at the light bulbs that are kind of ringing the room, they look like little skulls. We realized at a certain point that light bulbs were kind of the shape of skulls, and so we designed the filaments inside to kind of carry that idea forward. You took my photo of the ofrenda? It was an accident. How do we send them back? Over the, the course of making this film, we tried a lot of different ticking clocks to get this story going. We had a marigold hourglass that counted down the time until the end of the holiday. We had had this idea for Miguel to turn to a skeleton from early on, but it kind of came and went, and it wasn't until halfway through the process that we decided, let's see if it's effective and not too creepy. I think it's really visceral. I think you get it <laughs> more than any of the other options. You can get your blessing right now. Sempasuchel, sempasuchel. Aha! Perdón, señora. Oh. <laughs> now, you look at the living and say his name. Miguel. Nailed it. Now say, I give you my blessing. I give you my blessing. I give you my blessing to go This idea of Miguel needing a blessing in order to get home was kind of inspired by when I went off to college, my, my parents wanted me to go with their blessing, and they literally had me kneel down and, and said, go with our blessing. It became a great way for Miguel to try to get in the second act what he wanted in the first, was just permission, just acceptance, and it became just a great visual way to sell that idea. Skeletons. 
This sequence was originally boarded by one of our great story artists, Gleb Sanchez Lobachev, and he, he came up with this whole idea of Miguel kind of running and transforming mid-run into going through the pedals and going back and forth between the two worlds. And it was so entertaining the first time he pitched it to us. I don't think it's changed at all from that first time he boarded it. Don't make this hard, mijo. You go home my way or no way. You really hate music that much? I will not let you go down the same path he did. The same path he did? He's family. Listen to your mama, Imelda. She's just looking out for you. You'll notice the room number here, A113. Just another Easter egg we try to put into all of our films. It's the number of a classroom at CalArts where a lot of uh, great animators and animation directors went to college, including Mr. Adrian Molina. Did you have a Did class, you have a class in? A113? No, they rearranged the whole department, so A113 is a whole different department now, but we always go and check it out. about that hoodie? The hoodie was uh, something that was quite oh my gosh. a big technical Every movie has a hard thing to do, and the hoodie was one of the things in this movie. There were just so many states they had to have it in. It had to be unzipped. It had to be able to zip. It had to be zipped up. The hood had to go up and down. He had to be able to cinch it. We actually designed that white stripe down the sleeves so that when he was hidden in disguise as a skeleton and also starting to change into a skeleton, that it would give a little sense of arm bones, even though we're actually not seeing his arms most of the time. This uh, security guard here is played by Cheech Marin, who is the great comedian and actor, and he's actually part of the Pixar family. He plays Ramon in the Cars movies. Some of my favorite animation in the movie. We haven't talked about that at all, but it was a big challenge early on to figure out how we were going to animate the skeletons. We wanted them to be as entertaining as possible physically so that we could overcome the fact that we were skeletons. We didn't want them to ever be off-putting or scary in any way. So we found that by embracing some rules really helped us out. We had this notion that the better, the more well-remembered you were in the Land of the Dead, the more taut your body was, held together by whatever magical life forces hold the skeletons together. For a character like Hector, who's kind of on the verge of being forgotten, that life force is much looser and he's falling apart constantly and his ribs kind of jangle around and by really embracing that physicality it, it not, not only helped us with the rules of the movie and, and the characters but uh, also made the animation more entertaining he's my great great grandfather I love this bit, the joke of the eyeballs falling down. That was, we really <laughs> that's, liked that's gotta it be in the movie. We, we debated whether it was too weird and we all kind of came down on Yes, different opinions about it, but I think it's funny. <laughs> yes, it's weird, but yes, it's entertaining. Back to the land of the living. You know what? Maybe this isn't such. No, no, niño, niño, niño. I can help you. You can help me. We can help each other. But most importantly, there was a whole game to be played about keeping Hector away, hidden from the family, and never having them in the same scene. And hopefully, you don't notice as you're watching the film oh, the first time around. But it that was so tricky. It just had to do with how we staged everything because we couldn't have Mama Imelda ever see Hector because she knows who he is, of course. Yeah, there's a lot of sleight of hand going on. It took a while for us to kind of figure out the rules about the alabrijes and why they were in this world, because alabrijes, which are based on Mexican folk art, they don't have anything to do with Dia de los Muertos, really, just kind of tangentially. Uh, but we really wanted them to be a part of this film because they're so much a part of Mexican culture and visually they're so cool. 
we had gone down to Mexico and met with some Alabrije makers, and I remember they would ask us, you know, what was your birthday and what was the day you were born? And they'd say, oh, this is your guardian animal. And that was kind of inspirational element for, oh, maybe we could make them, you know, these spirit guides, these guardian animals in the land of the dead. Which then makes it perfect for Dante to be there because, you know, Miguel doesn't understand why Dante gets to go with him. And so that when he's told that he's a, you know, a spirit guide, essentially, then it kind of makes sense why Dante is there. And I love that he can transcend borders. Even having Dante be in this world and be a, a Sholo dog, a Sholo Tzquintli, I mean, that goes back to a lot of the research we did into ancient Mesoamerican legends. The Sholo dog is the national dog of Mexico, but they've been around for eons, and they were revered, and they were considered to be a vital component to one's journey to Mictlan, to the land of the dead. Like, you needed to have one of these dogs with you to go on that journey. So it seemed fitting to have Dante going along on the journey and being a Sholo dog. Anytime you got a big scene like this with lots of acting and characters, it's a great playground for animators to put lots of little hidden bits in. If you watch Dante throughout this scene, he kind of goes up and starts sniffing this guy right there who's kind of <laughs> surprised and annoyed. If you watch the movie and just keep your eyes on Dante, there's so much entertaining animation to be like that, pushing his head through. Like there's so much that's secondary to what's actually going on in the storytelling. But if you watch the movie and just keep your eyes on Dante, you'll see tons of really fun little bits of animation. I remember there's a lot of stuff in the storyboards that I wasn't sure was actually going to be readable once we got it to animation. And stuff like Miguel's face paint and him slowly transitioning into a skeleton, we drew it in the storyboards. But at that stage, when it's such a rough drawing, you kind of wonder, like, is this actually going to look good? <laughs> is this going to make sense? Well, we did some tests, like putting makeup actually on, seeing what that might look like. And at first, it, they kind of looked like pandas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it was it was kind of later that we came up with this notion of letting some of Miguel's skin color, his flesh, show through and look like face paint. And that kind of helped tip it from being too panda over to being more of a Dia de los Muertos sugar skull face treatment. The skull hidden in the chair. Coming up here, you're going to see one last little Shining reference in the movie there in the background. You can see the twins from The Shining in one of the paintings in the background. This guy painting on the left is meant to be Frida Kahlo's companion, a very famous Mexican artist and muralist. There's a Luxo ball. Blink and you'll miss it. In some of our research, we had seen these monkeys that kind of ride dogs around in rodeos. <laughs> and we just kind of cast that aside and said, oh, that will never be in the movie. But we kind of had our little monkey rodeo moment right there. And I love monkeys, so we had to do a monkey albrije. And Frida Kahlo actually had monkeys as pets, and she painted them often. So it seemed fitting to give her a, an albrije monkey. We took some liberties with Frida Kahlo in these scenes because Frida was, wasn't a showy person. You know, she never was really a set designer or a performance artist. But uh, we thought, well, but nobody knows what happened with Frida in the Land of the Dead. Here comes the scene I wrote that I never expected to actually make it in the film. Because it's weird. It's weird. It's really weird. Gloriously weird. Darkness. And from the darkness, a giant... So Frida Kahlo didn't really create performance pieces, but she was so much about creating the self-portrait and exploring the inner world. And I thought, eh, in the afterlife, we've got tons of time on our hands, so why not take it to another level? And so this is her living self-portrait. Is it too obvious? 
I think it's just the right amount of obvious. Between what you wrote and then Maddie Sharafi and boarding it, it was always really entertaining. All just these weird multiple Fridas in leotards. It was just a completely bizarre idea, but yay, it stayed in the movie. What if everything was on fire? In earlier versions of the story, Miguel was really on a quest for finding his place as a performer and the importance of music and being recognized as an artist. And that's not as strong of an idea anymore, but this was kind of a holdover from that idea, having this moment where Frida Kahlo kind of acknowledges that he is a true artist and, and that having an impact on him. Yeah, it kind of gives him the fuel to keep on pursuing that big goal of finding Ernesto de la Cruz and getting his blessing. Ernesto doesn't do rehearsals. He's too busy hosting that fancy party at the top of his tower. Chamaco, you can't run off on me like that. Come on, stop pestering the celebrities. You said my great-great-grandpa would be here. He's halfway across town throwing some big party. That bum. Who doesn't show up to his own rehearsal? If you're such good friends, how come he didn't invite you? He's your great-great-grandpa. So here's Lombardo Boyar again, who played the mariachi in the plaza at the beginning of the film. He just had such an amazing voice, and he was so completely entertaining, every bit of dialogue that we gave him. We also accidentally realized that this guy looks a lot like Pixar director Ronnie Del Carmen. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. I don't want to talk about it. He choked on some chorizo! How many different versions of death did Hector go through? Hector, oh, for his nickname? <laughs> chorizo. Oh, we end up with chorizo, yeah. But what, what, yeah, what did we go through? We were trying to find CH words because we thought they were funny. There was chimichanga. chimichanga. But that's, that's, not, that's not native to Mexico. That's more of an Arizona thing. Chalupa. Chalupa. We're just trying to find a funny, demeaning word. And again, another tiny setup for him thinking he had food poisoning. Right, and then ultimately learning how he really died. Uh, I know a guy. That shadow moment on the wall is a nice setup, or there's a nice payoff later in the epilogue when Pepita's about to round the corner and we see that she's transformed back into just a cat in the land of the living. So another one of those echoes. You can see in the background here this kind of Aztec pyramid motif. We always imagined that these towers were built out of layers of history, so all of them starting with Mesoamerican pyramids at the bottom and then post-Columbian architecture leading up to more modern stuff. Yeah, when we were building the Land of the Dead, we realized we had a lot of freedom and liberties because in the Land of the Dead, we don't need to have guardrails or anything at all having to do with safety because when the skeletons fall, they are already dead. So when It's they, more of an inconvenience It's more than of an anything. inconvenience than anything. That's right. We find ourselves here down at the base of one of these towers where there's kind of this ragtag community of people who are on the verge of being forgotten. And we kind of figured they'd be on the fringes of society and just would have put these little enclaves together for themselves. That creature, that Alabrije that jumps by past uh, Dante, we affectionately called the frobbit. He looked like a cross <laughs> between a frog and a rabbit. That moment showed up in lots of different places in the movie, and every time we saw it, it made us laugh, mostly because one of our sound designers made a really funny voice for him that I just remember cracking up the first time I heard it. It kind of moved like a puzzle piece all over the movie. We knew we had to figure out some place to put it, and that's the original sound that he uh, designed for, for the voice of the frobbit. Wait. 
Buenas noches, chicharrón. I don't want to see this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's also when I started writing the first scene I wrote and also the first song that I wrote on the film. We had had versions of the film where we heard about this idea of the second death and people talked about it and that you get forgotten. It kind of came and went and passed by without a lot of note. And I thought this is such an important idea in terms of stuff that's associated with Mexican beliefs about death and for the stakes of Hector in the film that I thought if we had a way to show it, to kind of fall in love with the character for a second and then see it happen, I think it would stay with you for the rest of the film. We felt like Miguel needed to see somebody die that second death. But we thought, how are we going to do that without it completely slamming the brakes on the movie? Like, how do you move on from that? And you managed to pull it off in the scene because we take the time, because we don't rush past it. You have the time to absorb the heaviness of what's just happened, and they talk about it. And it becomes that much more powerful later when you realize that Hector's going to go through the same thing. Any requests? You know my favorite actor. And two of my favorite things about this scene are, one, the great actor, Edward James Olmos, plays it. He brings the proper amount of gravitas, and there's nothing like his voice and texture. And the other thing about this scene is just the juxtaposition of this irreverent song. It is such a big, important, heavy moment, but the song is so irreverent and silly. And her knuckles, they drag on the floor. Those are the words. A lot of the tone that you get from Dia de Muertos is this kind of balance of an irreverence with death, the heartache with the humor, and this was really one of those moments where we wanted to give that expression. This is another example where we shot lots of reference footage of the playing of the guitar so that Hector could play it perfectly. This seemed like an ideal place to hide a bunch of Easter eggs, and in the end we decided not to because the scene is so kind of emotionally powerful. We just didn't want to have anything to distract. We thought about putting the Luxo ball in his hammock, but ended up deciding it was best not to do it in this scene. Another shout out to our effects team here for doing this final death of Chicharron. Wanted it to look uh, beautiful and ethereal, and they pulled that off. And poignant. Really nicely. There was just something so poetic about this second shot glass being left forever unfinished. It was really beautiful to me. I think Gael's really fantastic. He's fantastic in the whole movie, but I think he's especially great here in the section where he's talking about Chicharron. The final death. Where did he go? No one knows. It was kind of an obscure part of our research that we found out about the second or final death, and that was really helpful for us as storytellers to have stakes in the world. And as you're watching this scene, we all realize later that Hector's in the same position. But there's no one left alive to pass down Chicha's stories. You don't know it on your first time through, but you can hear in his voice that sense of he's sad for his friend, but also it means something for him, ultimately.
the sets team and the lighting team, everyone did such an amazing job creating this Land of the Dead that I really wanted to make sure that we had at least one spot in the film that would showcase it. So we staged this little transitional dialogue scene in the way that we did purely to show off the city. It was just a big technical and artistic feat. I think there's how many lights in this world? It's like millions in some of the shots. Millions. Literally millions. millions. Yeah. Every time we would see them in digital dailies or any of our lighting reviews, there were gasps from our team about the accomplishment of getting that much depth and beauty and scope on the screen. But at the same time, they did a lot with a little. Like for the Land of the Dead, we really only built, I think, three different unique towers. And then we just found that by rotating them to different positions and raising and lowering them in height, we could get a lot of different looks out of just a few towers. This MC is played by an actress named Blanca Araceli. Uh, when she came in to record, she was so quiet and demure and reserved, and then the moment the script pages came out, she turned on the sparkle. It was amazing. Yeah, she was so much fun. She brought so much life to this character. She looks like she stepped right out of a show here in San Francisco, Beach Blanket <laughs> Babylon. <laughs> You know, we're making a film about musicians and about Miguel trying to become a musician and every decision we make is around how we're going to make him prove it. And so this talent show became a good place to give him a challenge that he needed to rise up to. And it's a callback to the moment at the beginning of the film where he wanted to enter a talent show. He just needed a guitar, so, you know, put your money where your mouth is. But we needed to come up with a song for... Um, for him to sing, and here you see he can't choose Remember Me because everyone does Remember Me. That's Esquivel, by the way, who's another mm -hmm. well-known Mexican musician. Lots of little cameos if you know Mexican celebrities in this film. How'd you come up with the name for Los, Los Chachalacos? Uh, band names are hard, and so I was asking around, I asked Ana Ramirez in the art department, like, uh, what do you think would be a good name for a banda? And she says, uh, Chachalacas is like a chatty Cathy or someone who talks too much. And I was like, oh, that's fun. That sounds like <laughs> a noisy band. Call them Los Chachalacos. What? You said you were a musician. I am. I mean, I will be. In this next scene, Hector tries to get Miguel to belt out a grito. Grito literally means yell, and yeah. it's kind of the classic. Whenever uh, you feel so impassioned with sadness or joy or anything that's deep inside your heart, you let it out with this big yell. Hector tries to use it to shake Miguel out of his uh, nervousness. I need to prove that, that I'm worthy of it. Oh. Oh, that's such In this scene, we wanted to have time for Hector and Miguel to bond because they've got very limited screen time in the film before they have to break up, and so we're trying to get the most bang for the buck for the time that they've got together. And this became a really fun way for Hector to give some nice musical advice while keeping it fun and silly. This idea for the grito, always looking for little elements, specifically Mexican elements, that we can assist the storytelling with. Oh, feels good. Okay, now, now, now you. Oh, Dante's little... <laughs> Cowering, Cowering from the bad grito. <laughs> so the original conception for this song, for Poco Loco, came from, you know, we wanted to have a moment where the two of them could kind of be bonding on stage in a fun way. I mean, that was the original conception. As I was writing the script, I thought, well... I could either take a stab at 
what they're singing. I don't know what the tune's going to be. I don't know what the rhythm's going to be, but I could at least get some words out that express what we need to express. Or I could hand it off to someone else. But I thought, well, I'll just take a stab at it and teamed up with Jermaine Franco to put it to music. And we both love Son Jarocho music, this kind of Spanish, Afro-Caribbean style. And it really lent itself to this upbeat midpoint number that Miguel and Hector could perform together. I always had to put it through the filter of Miguel thinks this is a De La Cruz song, but it's actually a Hector song. This one I always imagine Hector wrote the lyrics about Imelda, that when you love someone, sometimes they drive you a little crazy and, and vice versa. One of the great things that this led to is we, we saw the potential to really have fun with the skeleton animation on Hector. Davi Anderson had done a lot of early tests, really inventive creative ways of breaking Hector up and so we gave him a lot of this initial animation of Hector kind of pulling himself apart and being really creative in the use of his body. And speaking of the performing, when Hector comes out on stage and starts doing this elaborate footwork, we actually had musicians that we worked with down in Mexico, the group Mano Blanco. One of the members kind of did this footwork for us to the music and we videotaped him for reference so that the animators could kind of match his footwork. I think later on the sound design guys also added some kind of bone elements to it to give it that rhythm and that physicality that Hector would have. Well, right here you're about to see just a little bit of animation for Dante. His tongue flip out and wrap around his mouth, and his tongue is almost an entirely other character. And what we found out about Sholo dogs is that they often lose or never had their back teeth, and their tongues naturally flop out. And so we thought that would be a really fun and true thing to incorporate into Dante's character. There's actually a statue of dead De La Cruz, skeletal De La Cruz, in the plaza there. But we ended up not showcasing it because I wanted to hold off as long as possible actually seeing De La Cruz in his skeletal form. So in some of the signs and things, we either kept him in silhouette or sometimes used the living version of De La Cruz in posters just so it would have the most impact when Miguel finally got to his house and he turned around for the first time and we got to see him and Miguel got to see him. Wait, wait, wait. You said De La Cruz was your only family, the only person who could send you home. I do have other family, but... You could have taken my photo back this whole time? But they hate music. I mean, Originally, it was on stage while they were singing when Hector figured out that Miguel had lied to him. Like in the middle of the song? In the middle of the song, and we thought it was funny that they're pretending to like each other, but they're driving each other crazy um, in the middle of a performance. Ultimately, that revelation came after this moment because we really wanted their bonding to feel good, especially around music. One of the ideas that we added into the film was having this uh, kind of beacon for Miguel of having De La Cruz's home at the top of this tower and having it be something that Miguel could see along his journey because we always wanted to remind the audience what Miguel's goal was, where he was trying to head. That painting there is a cartoon done by one of our cultural consultants, Lalo Alcaraz, who's a great cartoonist, and that's one of his characters, which is like a skeletal cockroach. I love the skull hidden in the wall here behind Dante, where we just kind of use the windows and another little tiny window underneath to be the nose. I like these more kind of subtle skull motifs hidden here and there. 
I also love the pavers and the tiles in the plaza back there being kind of interlocking bone shapes. Okay, we just try to find fun little ways of getting bone motifs here and there and everywhere. We used to have a little scene lit here where Pepita picks up Miguel and flies him all over the city trying to... It's my one regret in the movie. <laughs> it was a cool sequence, yeah, where Pepita swooped him up and Miguel grabbed onto some Papel Picado and fell, and the Papel Picado tangled around him and cushioned his fall. It was just a fun little action bit, but... We had to get rid of it so we could have other fun bits. We had to finish the movie on time, so <laughs> something had to give. It was sad. The candles in this wall are reminiscent of one of the cemeteries we saw down in uh, Oaxaca. Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was such a beautiful wall that we had to find a place for it in our film. Alana Yubach here, uh, who plays Mama Melda, she, uh, she's an incredible singer, but she hasn't sung much in the roles that she's played. She sang a little bit in Sister Act 2, but I saw some YouTube videos of her singing in a club and also singing in her car, just sitting in traffic. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's got an incredible voice. So we, we approached her at some point because we had this idea of having her sing La Llorona in the film. And uh, she was so excited to sing it because there was a connection to her mother having to do with the song. And uh, she was so proud to be performing such an iconic Mexican song in the film. I think when we first heard her record for Mama Imelda, this was one of the earliest scenes that she did, and it just gave she such a sense of, of the heartbreak and the history and, and the emotion, that the scope that Mama Imelda could have, and that became a really, um, really nice touchstone for even writing more for her and, and developing her out as a really interesting character. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I think it adds just such a depth and uh, resonance and just super exciting that it's in Spanish. Yeah, originally Mama Melda was very kind of one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. She was Starting. kind of a cartoony villain, and uh, that was a journey, kind of finding her, finding the humanity in her. The vulnerability. Love the orange carpet instead of a red carpet leading into De La Cruz's mansion. Appropriate. This is El Santo, who is a uh, very well-known Mexican lucha libre wrestler. We figure De La Cruz is at the height of his popularity when he died, so he'd be friends with all of the Mexican celebrities, so you'll see there's a, a ton of them sprinkled throughout this party. We imagine that Ernesto De La Cruz was more famous than all of them in our fictitious universe, and they would all want to be at his party. Well, especially on this holiday with his song. Originally, in an earlier version, we actually had Miguel and Hector win the talent show. They actually won, but Miguel, to escape from his family, had to kind of take off before they got to have their prize. In this version, we kind of figured since uh, we never even saw who won, the fact that they left meant that Los Chachalacos won by default, but we figured they were probably impressed by Miguel's performance. De La Cruz's mansion here at the top of the tower was modeled very much after Hollywood in the 1920s, 30s. There was a lot of architecture done that was kind of Spanish colonial style. Since uh, De La Cruz was of that era, we figured that his mansion would kind of have that vibe and we knew it would fit into our world here. We made De La Cruz be this kind of white rabbit. We knew this would be a really colorful world, and we needed De La Cruz to stand out from it, so we made this decision to dress him in all white so that he would contrast and kind of pop out from everybody else. And I, I like the white rabbit aspect of it, that Miguel's kind of chasing this fleeting person into this party. 
The music in this scene is from one of our musical consultants, Camila Lara, in the Mexican Institute of Sound. And we had this in, in the very early reels, and it just grew on us so much. It's so bouncing. It gives such the feeling. And here's a little cameo. Yeah, that's, that's Camila Lara. Yeah, I love Mexican Institute of Sound. I was a big fan before I made this movie, and he ended up being a big, his music was a big inspiration to me early on in the creating of the concept. I just figured in the land of the dead, you'd have a mishmash of lots of different musical styles, and, and to me, his music kind of embodied that. So we listened to a lot of his music and used it in our temp reels, and I was excited to use an actual piece of his music in the finished film. And this is one of those moments where you've got these film clips doing double duty. You wanted to inspire him at the beginning of the film and inspire him again in the middle of the film. There's a lot to actually put together all these clips that are playing in the background. It's a huge <laughs> amount of work. We call those pips, picture in pictures, and they're the bane of everybody's existence because it's like double, triple, quadruple duty for any given shot because you've got different shots nestled inside other shots. Anthony did a great job singing this fun song that you wrote. This was fun. Yeah, I tried to imagine something that would have come from a De La Cruz film that he might sing at a wedding or a big party that Miguel could impress him with. And it's quite convenient that he happens to be singing along with the movie right at the perfect spot, but that's movie magic. <laughs> so we knew we needed to get Miguel out of his makeup at some point, and this seemed like a fun way to do it. You could question the wiseness of having an open swimming pool right in the middle of a major party like this. <laughs> it sure looks cool. And it's the land of the dead. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why everyone panics and De La Cruz has to jump in to rescue someone who they think is already dead initially, but oh well. Because he's a decent human being. <laughs> so he's think. a hero. He's a hero. Yeah, he's playing the part. The public expects certain things. Your great-great-grandson. I have a great-great-grandson. The scene, this moment of kind of Miguel outing himself to De La Cruz and not knowing how he's going to react existed in so many different forms in so many different settings. We had an early version, I remember, where Miguel actually snuck onto the grounds. He climbed a wall and snuck into De La Cruz's mansion, and we had skeleton guard dogs chasing him down and cornering him. And We had a scene very much like this at that moment where he had to kind of reveal himself to De La Cruz, and it all ended the same way with the surprise of De La Cruz being kind of warm and welcoming and happy to meet his great-great-grandson. We'll call back to Frida. It's nice when everything makes sense and was there for a reason. Some more Mexican celebrities. And little cameos. a little call back to the uh, call forward oh right <laughs> yes because we're going to use this clip again in the reveal you know i did all my own stunts i think that's just kind of like the gangs all there in that shot all the different we're celebrities always looking for every opportunity we could to see remember me uh into the film just just to keep it in your head keep it on the radar originally we we had the idea of it just playing anywhere and everywhere we had a scene in an elevator at one point and we had an elevator music version of, of remember me playing mm -hmm. Just so that it had the most impact when, you, when we finally revealed what the song really was. This set of Ernesto de la Cruz's A Friend a Room, you know, we wanted to show how beloved he was and how many 
things were left for him every year. And rather than just having piles of guitars and bottles and food and everything, we thought it'd be fun to arrange them in this very rigorously designed way. See, but I could not have done it differently. One cannot deny who one is meant to be. And you, my great-great-grandson, are meant to be a musician. You and I, we are artists. These Albrije chihuahuas are completely unnecessary to the scene. <laughs> really early on in the story reels, we had De La Cruz holding little skeleton chihuahuas. Those went away, but there was something funny to me about De La Cruz having little dogs that he carried around. It's kind of like Liberace with his little poodles. So we created this little bevy of Albrije chihuahuas for him to have with him. And then we realized how necessary they were. <laughs> Miguel, you must come to the show. You will be my guest of honor. You mean it? Of course, my boy. This is a moment I always wondered would be a little too creepy, but, you know, we wanted to up the stakes, and I feel like it, it gives you just enough urgency to send Miguel home. <laughs> see that Miguel's changing. Yeah, you see his, his ribs. Section. Yeah. yeah. It has been an honor. I was always really pushing for super-saturated color in the movie, and Danielle Feinberg, who is our director of photography for lighting, she, she would show me these color keys that were gorgeous, but I kept pushing her to go more and more saturated with the color. I just wanted super bold use of color in The Land of the Dead, and she came up with these great images, which I absolutely love, and it's exactly what I always wanted. You can see the lighting changing on De La Cruz here, starting that to... That cool light. Yeah. Sharon Callahan and Danielle Feinberg and the lighting team yeah, did a great job of using that pool to start to lean towards De La Cruz, maybe not being the great guy that we thought he was. There's some color schemes that I would naturally never tend toward an orange-green-purple color scheme, but to see it used in this way, it gives it such this otherworldly feeling, and it does so much for the tone of this scene that I just think it's brilliant. Michael Giacchino's music at the top of the scene is very kind of uplifting and it's very positive, you know, as he's getting ready to send Miguel back. But then when Hector shows up, things do take a, a turn for the weird and the darker. And the thing I love about Michael's music is that it, it almost feels like it's the soundtrack from one of the De La Cruz clips playing on the wall. It's got this kind of 1930s, 40s noir kind of feeling. Yeah, this slow unraveling of secrets. Ernesto. Remember the night I left? That was a long time ago. We drank together, and you told me you would move heaven and earth for your amigo. And we're still trying to play De La Cruz very much like he's a nice guy. You know, he's troubled that Hector's come back, but it's more like troubled because you have a friend who's kind of gone off the rails and had a bad life, and you feel for them. De La Cruz feels bad for him, but... We didn't want to play that he was at all guilty or complicit in anything until we finally realized that he, he did poison Hector. We tried our utmost in the movie all the way up to this point to portray De La Cruz as being as warm and grandfatherly as possible and the perfect person for Miguel to be idolizing. And of course, the rug just gets pulled right out from under Miguel as he kind of puts this all together and realizes he's been adoring a madman. Even in this flashback, we didn't want to be explicit about the poisoning. We wanted just to show De La Cruz's reaction and show his emotional state and, you know, leave it still, that little seed of doubt um, as to whether or not this happened, to leave it up to Miguel to decide who he believed and who he trusted. You never actually see De La Cruz put the poison into the drink, but 
<laughs> He's up to something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we definitely push it in a direction, but... I felt the pain in my stomach. I thought it must have been something I ate. Perhaps it was that chorizo, my friend. We have a nice payoff here of the chorizo set up earlier. I woke up dead. In very early versions of the film, Hector knew that De La Cruz murdered him the whole time, and we decided that we really needed to hold off on that information because it didn't make sense for Hector to help this kid get to this guy if he knew he was a murderer. Yeah, again, just the kind of the chess game of it all, just from a story construction standpoint. The first few years of constructing the story, there was a lot of rejiggering and rethinking of, you know, what was the best way to tell this story. You know, kind of the core fundamentals of the story stayed the same, but the the devil was in the details of exactly how to lay it all out and let the story unfold. There was a lot of writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Can I just say that the acting in this film, what the animators have done with these subtle expressions and these subtle facial tics, you look at Miguel, you look at De La Cruz and the gears that are turning. Yeah, that, that shot was the very last shot that we finaled. Very important to me. I would hate to have you think. That you murdered Hector for his songs? <laughs> you don't think that. If I have any style of directing animation, because I'm not an animator myself, so I tend to not come at animation from a more graphic direction, though I have an appreciation for it. I'm always steering towards believability of character and just believing that these are living, breathing characters who have souls and are thinking deeply about what's going on and maybe not always expressing outwardly what they're thinking inside. And I think the animators have appreciated being kind of pushed in that direction and thinking about all of those things. And it really, it brings the characters to life in a way that I know I'm happy with. And I, I believe that, you know, to your point, that you stop thinking about it being animation and you just start believing the characters as being real and alive. This pit or cave that Miguel gets thrown into um, was kind of inspired by these beautiful caverns down in Mexico called cenotes. And uh, even though this is kind of a man-made one, we, we still called it a cenote while we were making the film. We tried to have a nod to kind of this ancient Mesoamerican uh, history that we had as part of the Land of the Dead. Um, so these big sculptures, these kind of ruins that you see in this room were inspired by a lot of the beautiful sculptures that we saw at the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. Remember when we first went on the first trip down there, I think it was, and Jim Morris, the president of Pixar, said, you have to go to that museum. It was his recommendation, and we were so excited when we went in there and saw all this amazing stuff. It's really beautiful. I mean, if any of you go to Mexico City, you have to visit this museum. It's just incredible. These statues are kind of classic Aztec um, death imagery. There was a, a king of the dead and a queen of the dead. I won't try to say their names because they are very difficult to pronounce, and I don't want to say them wrong. But uh, these sculptures are kind of inspired. They seemed fitting for the land of the dead. We had a lot of different versions of the scene where Miguel would finally figure out who Hector actually was, and Hector figured out who Miguel was, and they took place in different locations. We had a version of the movie at one point where Hector was a tour guide in the Land of the Dead, and he had his own bus, and uh, we had a whole scene where Miguel went and found him kind of 
passed out on his bus and this a scene like this kind of played out. But in the end, we realized we needed to put them in a situation where it was utterly hopeless for both of them. And it was only in that moment of utter hopelessness that this new revelation could blossom. There's a lot that comes together in this scene. This was one that, you know, we always knew the pieces that had to go in there, but there was revelations about De La Cruz, there was family revelations, there was Remember Me. So much had to fit into this scene that that it got rewritten a lot too, but I'm really happy with where we ended up. On that note, we should give a shout-out to another writer we worked with on the film named Matthew Aldrich, who was with us for the first few years of crafting this story. And uh, a lot of his work is in the finished film, and uh, he he really helped us on our initial journey of figuring out what this movie was going to be. And then, uh, Adrian, when you came on and started writing, you were able to really take a lot of these disparate ideas that we had, but we couldn't quite figure out how to make work. And uh, you helped kind of cinch it all together and... A, a, lot of, a lot of this heart, these moments like Hector singing the song, you know, the unholy act where Miguel steals the guitar, a lot of these tentpole moments were, were in there from the very beginning, and, and that came from that. The last person who remembers me. The moment she's gone from the living world. You disappear from this one, but you'll never get to see her. Ever again. We knew from very early on that we wanted to have this duality between the way that De La Cruz sang Remember Me and the way it was originally meant to be sung. When we first started working with Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, the songwriting duo who wrote the songs for Frozen and lots of other things, we've been friends and fans for many years. Uh, this was the first thing we talked to them about, was this notion of, of a song serving two purposes. And uh, we talked about it at length, and they went off and they wrote Remember Me and uh, had demos for both of these versions, kind of the, the upbeat, showy version that we see De La Cruz sing, and then this kind of quiet, tender moment of Hector singing to his daughter, Coco. And uh, they nailed it, you know, first time out of the gate. I don't think we changed it at all. Through all our story changes, the, the song always remained the same, and this notion of discovering how it was meant to be sung was, was an idea that we had very, very early on that they brought to fruition beautifully. And of course, the lyrics and title of the song, Remember Me, is... So perfect so, for so, the holiday. Yeah, so perfect for the holiday, because that's what it's all about. The little girl playing Coco uh, is actually voiced by two little girls. Um, one was one we found here in the Bay Area, but uh, also part of that little bit of the song is sung by Gael Garcia Bernal's own daughter, Libertad. Mm-hmm. We thought that would be sweet to have that real connection between the two of them. He stole your guitar? He stole your songs? Again, shout out to the Can effects and cloth team on this scene. This water's gorgeous. Turns out it's not so easy to have wet clothes on a character, and multiple layers of wet clothes is not so easy either, and wet hair. Uh, but everyone did a gorgeous job. I I was related to a murderer. You're a total upgrade. My whole life, there's been something that made me different, and I never know where it came from. But now I know. It comes from you. I'm proud we're family. I'm proud to be his family!
We always imagined that Dante didn't know what his purpose was, but that he was driven by instinct to fulfill his duty as a spirit guide. And whenever Miguel was not with his family, whenever he was going off on his own, it was Dante's instinctual imperative to reconnect them. Well, and especially Hector, since he knows... Hector's family. Whenever Miguel's with Hector, Dante's just carefree and happy, but when they get separated, he gets anxious. And it's nothing you notice when you're watching it, but when you watch it the second time, when you know what's really going on, it's fun to see. Really, if it weren't for Dante, Miguel wouldn't have showed up in the room where Hector's getting interrogated. Right. So, I mean, this moment is so true, right? Because he really was guiding him there all along, and Miguel's having that revelation, and it's at that moment of Miguel understanding that we allowed to then trigger Dante's transformation into an Alabrije. Kind of to his own surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And his wings. Uh, John Lassiter was one who really pushed us to give Dante this patchwork quality, this goofy but extremely beautiful design work in his Alabrije state. Yeah, total mishmash. This next scene, which we called Reconciliation, which was about mending the fence between Hector and Mama Imelda, it always just took place in a plaza. And then Sharon Callahan, who was a lighting consultant on the film, uh, had this idea to set it on a rooftop near the Marigold Grand Central Station so we could have this giant illuminated window in the background. I fell in love with her painting the moment I saw it, and we changed where we staged this, and it just made it that much more special and beautiful. The original version of the scene, we actually had a full reconciliation. Yeah, they, she, Imelda used to forgive Hector completely, and they all got on board with helping Miguel. We watched it, and people got it, but it was so early in the movie for everything to come together that it felt like too much was resolved. And it was a little unbelievable. You know, the deeper we got into Imelda's character and how hurt she was from this guy leaving her, and it just seemed unrealistic that she'd be ready to forgive him right away. And so it was a real win to have her withhold. She's still hurt, but she cares about her family. It allowed us to then have some fun kind of teasing out her. Yeah, the warming up over the course of the third act. That really resonated with so many people when we would get feedback from the film, both humorous and real and emotionally satisfying. It's true, Imelda. And so what if it's true? You leave me alone with a child to raise I love the, I I love the acting all around in the scene, the voice acting, the animation. It's very vulnerable. I'm running out of time. It's Coco. She's forgetting you. You don't have to forgive him. But we shouldn't forget him. I wanted to forget you. I wanted Coco to forget you too, but... This is my fault. Not yours. It's also kind of nice, uh, before it used to be that Imelda was completely on board with Miguel's plan, and here she kind of... She's reluctant. Yeah, she reasserts the ultimatum, and it gives you just that extra bit of tension, wondering... Well, it's kind of sad. Miguel has a solution to his problem. They are going to send him home, but he's acquiesced, and he's said, okay, fine, I'll never play music again. But, But at the same time, we like him as a character because he's willing to sacrifice that in the name of bringing his family together. 
and righting these wrongs that happened in the family history. I might know way. Here, here comes to fruition all of my wildest dreams, <laughs> seeing this performance. And weirdness. And there, that's uh, Michael Giacchino, of course. We gave him a little cameo um, as the conductor. A board artist, Trevor Jimenez, put together this final performance, performance, and I just smiled ear to ear <laughs> when I saw it. It's just so weird, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> Gotta get the monkey in there again. The monkey in there is, to me, just quintessential Lee Anchorage, that little moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I just love that Frida has her small moment earlier in the film that's memorable, but I love that we kind of close that loop and she helps in her own way. I realized after we animated this, I think this is the third movie I've done where we had a group of people huddle and then shot it from below. I think we also did it in Toy Story 3 and way back in Bugs Life. So there you go. The trio is complete. <laughs> we like the callback to Abuelita with the chancla. That probably came from Mama Imelda. Mama Imelda probably started the whole entire chancla movement. <laughs> in, in, in the world. In the world. He's talking about me. You! Wait, you're related to Hector? The photo! I love the whole look of this backstage area here. We looked at the Michael Keaton film Birdman because there was lots of great backstage stuff going on in that film and that ended up being an inspiration for a lot of the look of this area below stage. That guy there who gets knocked over, who says, you're on in 30 seconds, senor, he's voiced by Emilio Fuentes, who was our original voice of Miguel. We started working with him when he was about 12 or 13, and he's now 17. His voice has totally changed. We thought it would be fun to give him a little moment in the movie. Yeah, he drove himself to that <laughs> session. <laughs> So we love the idea of Mama Melda being shoved out on stage unwittingly and ending up singing. And I can't remember when we decided to have her sing La Llorona. I think Camilo had put together a kind of remix of a classic oh, version of right. La Llorona. And that's I heard right. that as like, oh, this would be so cool to see as a scene in the film. And what I love about this scene is the problem in Miguel's life is that his family is stuck one way and he's stuck the other. And his family kind of comes to remember what music can bring to them and what it does for Imelda in particular. And I love that, you know, Hector takes a step forward, Imelda takes a step forward, and that's how characters come together. Yeah, and it's all cemented in that moment of music when Hector is playing for her, accompanying her when she's singing La Llorona, that we feel the final melting of remembering why she loved him in the first place and, and truly forgiving him. And, you know, really, in the storytelling, you don't know it, but that's how you meet them. In the story that Miguel tells in the Papel Picado, you meet them as a family who played and sang music together, and when that moment happens, that's when we feel like, oh, yeah, that's where the reuniting comes from. That's where the reconciliation happens. 
We always had the movie end at a big Sunrise Spectacular show. That was something we had kind of in our earliest versions of the film, but it ended entirely differently. Originally, Miguel took the guitar, De La Cruz's guitar, into the Land of the Dead, and he needed that guitar to get back out. And we actually had a big climax here at the show where De La Cruz actually took the guitar and completely smashed it and ruined any chance for Miguel to get back home. And at that point, we had the family all not only having aprons on, but they had tools, like shoemaking tools with them. And the family ended up coming together and rebuilding the guitar using their shoemaking tools and using shoelaces as guitar strings. And it was an interesting notion, but we ended up having to go in a a different direction when we didn't take the guitar to the Land of the Dead. In that early version, too, Miguel was the one who performed on stage, and that was a big moment. But I think later on we realized Miguel didn't really need to learn something special about music at this moment. The person who really needed to have that musical reawakening was was more Imelda. I love how she just throws herself into Hector's arms there, just laughing at the joy. You just feel like any, any problems between them have now completely gone away. This is a nice return to the blessing idea with the added twist that Miguel is being released from his obligation to not pursue music when he gets back home. Never play music again. Do never forget how much your family loves you. When I was a kid, I was I always get fr- so frustrated at these like slow reaches for the thing that's going to save <laughs> your life. It, Just it. do it. Just grab it. <laughs> Here I am inflicting the same pain on uh, I millions felt, of kids. We felt bad having Benjamin Bratt play De La Cruz, this kind of dark, evil De La Cruz here, because he, he loves the character so much, and he played him so warm and genuinely up to this point that uh, I think he had mixed feelings about being the villain, ultimately. But he still gave it his all, and <laughs> he made him believably dark. Yeah, he said, this is, this is where my kids are not going to be happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants yeah, to play in, the villain. In, in, his, in his household, the film ends after the <laughs> pool scene. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's happy at the end. It takes to seize my moment. Whatever it takes. So we wanted De La Cruz to do something to Miguel that was just awful and was basically ensuring that he never got to go home and ruin his legacy or his memory. And that's what led to us designing this Sunrise Spectacular taking place at the top of this uh, this huge tower so that we could have this fall here. Uh, Miguel kind of very nearly falling to his death and losing the photo, only to be saved by Pepita at the last moment. With an assist from Dante. Really, if Dante hadn't got there. Dante slowed him just enough <laughs> for Pepita to show up. In an earlier version of the story, we actually had a whole bunch of other alabrijes that were part of the show. That was where we first met the Frobbit. There was like a stable of alabrijes below stage, and Dante banded them all together at the end here to all attack Taylor Cruz. We just had like a whole swarm, a whole menagerie of alabrijes attacking him. People give me grief about why all of these people would have fruit at a concert, and it's because they're coming back from Dia de Muertos, and their families leave them all these offerings. So they have it. But it's also a nice nod, too. I love the old I, little yeah, rascals. I love the, like, rotten tomatoes. Shorts where, thing. like, so, somehow someone's got a box of rotten tomatoes <laughs> ready just in case someone's bad on stage. 
This is Pepito's bioluminescence in her glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she. Cat Hicks was the animator who did a lot of work on Pepita, and uh, she she got to be very close to Pepita. Ironic that her name is Cat. <laughs> This came kind of late in the game, this idea of De La Cruz being done in by the bell. It was very much the same as what's in the movie for a long time, except Pepita kind of whacked him and he went flying out onto the horizon and disappeared into the water. And uh, at some point we had a better idea. Had a better idea. What did I miss? It was just your cameo. That was me saying, uh, what did I miss? <laughs> that was Adrian's idea. Hey, that was, that line in at the last I think minute. That was the last joke I wrote for this film. So John Ratzenberger and I are the only non-Latino voices in the in the movie. Coco. No, we can still find the photo. Miguel, it's almost sunrise. No, 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 I can't leave you. I love this transition on Miguel, the ticking time clock on Hector and Miguel and everything. It's just beautiful and urgent. I don't know what happens when the sun goes up. We, we've talked a lot about what happens in the land of the dead when that sun actually rises, and I don't quite know. I mean, there's a lot of beliefs in around the Day of the Dead that the dead actually go to a place of kind of darkness and silence for the year, and it's only during the celebration that they kind of come alive and, and, and are able to travel back to visit their relatives. We had a lot of ideas early on of these giant hourglasses in the land of the dead that were filled with marigold petals counting down the moments until the end of the celebration. We just always liked the idea of the entire movie taking place at night in the middle um, in the land of the dead. Can you imagine his family's been out all night looking for him? We haven't talked about Abuelita much, but uh, she was voiced by uh, an actress named Renee Victor, who did an amazing job. And we didn't discover until after we were working with her that her own mother is still alive and is 109 years old, which is incredible. I mean, I don't, I've never met a 109-year-old person, but it, it just made it so personal to her, this idea of her own mother not recognizing her at times and, and, and you know being older herself, but having a, a parent who's really, really old. It was just so... It was just so perfect that things aligned in that way. This was another one of those scenes that from the very first screening, this was kind of our true north compass, this moment where Miguel comes to Mama Coco and sings to her. We always knew that this would be the scene that we were painting the entire film toward. And this is another scene that never really changed much. Mm -mm. Jason Katz boarded this originally, and it honestly did not change all that much. There were tiny little details that we adjusted here and there, but this scene was what it was for a long time, and it worked. I mean, even when the rest of the story wasn't working, the scene was emotionally effective and satisfying for the audience, and so we didn't want to mess with what was working. So, as, yeah, as Adrian said, we always painted to this. Not all of us. It's okay, mamita. Miguel? You apologize to your Mama Coco. Mama Coco. Well, apologize. Mama Coco's skin um, is so beautiful, and I remember Lee talking so early on about wanting to have this 
gorgeously textured, beautiful face. And there's something about it that's just so incredibly moving. It's, you know, the map of her life, or yeah. I, I don't know. This shot was inspired by Brad Bird. He had this idea of seeing her kind of flickering alive through her hand at first, and I thought that was a great idea that we embraced. Mama Coco is played by a great Mexican actress. Ana Ophelia Murguia. She's just a grand dame of Mexican theater and cinema. And I wanted to find somebody like that to play Mama Coco. She was just wonderful to work with, really. I just brought Coco to life. So she's so fragile, but so beautiful and sweet. We, we wanted it to feel like she had almost reverted back into being a little girl again, even though she's so old. Brought back by the memory, yeah. And always this idea that music could help reconnect you to your memories. One teacher own before he disappears, he hears that song, he says, brings back memories. And, you know, there is something so beautiful about this skill, this power that Miguel had that the family didn't realize mm -hmm. what its true value was till this moment. We also did a lot of research into Alzheimer's patients and how music, especially music from when they were young, had a way of revitalizing them. So this wasn't something we made up. This is a very real phenomenon of people. It's, it's typically only temporary, but people can be brought back to their former selves a bit by music. And that seemed so perfect and fitting for the story that we were telling. Love you so much. The tears and the kind of glistening eyes in this film, again, is something that just oh, gets me every time. <laughs> and uh, Anthony Gonzalez's performance in this scene is just, he just nailed it. it. It was just amazing that he could just turn it on. I don't know what he tapped into in his young life, but he could immediately bring this very, very genuine emotion to these moments when we needed him to. We'll be forever thankful that he came into our lives and we found our perfect Miguel. When I was a little girl, me and Mama would sing such beautiful songs. So this notion of an epilogue at the end of the film, we wanted to figure out a way to somehow see what was going on in the land of the dead and wrap up people's stories there. The only thing that really changed from what we originally did is we used to see De La Cruz. We used to see him kind of alone, wandering in his empty house with no friends anymore, surrounded by his riches. But we just couldn't find a way that made sense to go visit him. And when we came up with the idea of him being crushed by the bell again, I think that gave him a satisfying ending so that we could just spend time with the emotion of Hector being remembered and being able to finally come home for the first time for Dia de los Muertos. And being reunited with his daughter, this thing he thought would be impossible. This is a this is a punch to the gut <laughs> seeing Coco. That Coco has passed away. It does so much to tell you about the spirit of Dia de Muertos and that they're gone from the land of the living, but if you keep their memories in your hearts, they live on forever. And I think it was necessary and beautiful and makes me happy to see the family all reunited at the end. We didn't want to change Hector too much. We, we gave him some new clothing, a little bit. We wanted to have the feeling of his clothing that he was wearing during the movie. But if you notice, he has a vest on now instead of an old tattered jacket. And 
we patched his pants up and gave him some shoes, which he wasn't wearing earlier. Um, he's walking a little better. He's a little healthier. And of course he gets to walk on the bridge. Important to have that contrast between his last attempt to cross the bridge. It's, it's just so sweet to see the family all together. We originally didn't have this song playing over this. We just played this kind of musically, and it wasn't until the very end of the movie that Miguel then played a song for his family. But Adrian and Jermaine wrote this beautiful song, and as we kind of noodled around and tried to figure out where it would all fit, we had this idea to start the song right away when we went into the epilogue, Back to the Land of the Dead, and it all laid in very nicely here against all the storytelling that we had to do. The film has had our true north emotional ending with Miguel singing to Mama Coco, but I remember when I first saw this scene, saw the whole entire family together. Living it, and dead. Living and dead together. I actually got very emotional about that idea, as much as, if not more than, um, our original amazing ending. And I love that Miguel's wearing a traje. I mean, it's yeah. just like that we see that clearly the family is like 1,000% supportive of his, his music. His cousins are playing instruments yeah. along yeah. with him, but completely uh, 180 from the beginning of the film. This end credit sequence was designed by Harley Jessup and then executed beautifully by Andy Jimenez, who's an amazing After Effects story artist at the studio. At the time that we're recording this commentary, we're done with the movie, but it actually hasn't come out yet. So we don't know how it's going to do or what people are going to think about it. I do know that I'm really proud of this film. I, I think the team that we worked with, always so much heart, always wanted to go the extra mile, and you can tell it on every frame. And to be able to make something that makes me so proud, I can only hope that the world feels the same when they see it. When I think back to when we first pitched this and we didn't even have a story yet, but we just had an inkling of an idea of what it could be, it's, it's strange to now find ourselves here having finished the film and you have to look back and reflect on how does the finished film compare to you know, what we thought it could be at the beginning. I'm happy to say that it not only has all the elements that I was hoping for it, you know, I wanted to make an emotional film, a colorful film, a musical film, a culturally accurate and respectful film, and I, I, I think we've done that. But, of course, the, the finished film is so much better than any of us could have dreamed uh, it could be. And that's what happens when you get so many different people kind of throwing in their own taste and sense of style and design skills and acting skills and every, everything. Any finished film is just the sum of uh, all of its parts, but, it, but it's greater than the sum of all of its parts. And um, you see that it really does take an army of people to make these films. I mean, we're the ones sitting here talking about this, but there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were all an important part of bringing Coco to life. Um, from the earliest stages when we were writing and storyboarding the film to the very end when we were putting in the sound effects and mixing the soundtrack and everything in between. Every one of these people that you're seeing scroll by here um, put their heart and soul into making this film as beautiful and funny and poetic and moving as, as possible. I feel so honored to have worked with the cast that we put together on this film. Every actor and actress that we worked with 
had a personal story, had a personal connection, and felt so excited about representing this family on screen. By and large, Pixar is this big extended family and, um, and very inclusive, and we pretty much represent the entire studio in the credits, more or less, and I love that about us. I love that everybody's on there, and this film, like all of our films, you felt the full support and excitement from the entire studio for this movie. Um, from the very first screening, when we were pitching it, I just felt the love and support and excitement from the studio, and I love to see everybody's names up here in the credits. I'm so appreciative that we work at a studio that supports making films that are kind of outside the box, that do things maybe differently than other studios would. And, and for us on this film, telling a story that's so culturally specific, it was a bold step to have the support to, to do something like this. But we had that support from the very beginning. I pitched this idea to John Lasseter six years ago, and right from the very beginning, he was fully on board and excited about setting a story in this world. He had us hop on planes down to Mexico within weeks of that pitch. And so we went down to Mexico for Dia de los Muertos. And from that day forward, John and everyone at the studio has been really supportive of making what they felt could be a really special movie. I love that candle right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, when did the idea come about for the digital ofrenda? We've been talking about it for a while. A lot of people had approached me in the studio because all these many years we've always done this super charming thing about listing the production babies yeah, at the listing end all of the, the production movie, babies, all the babies and that's, that were born over the course of production and that's such a familial Pixar thing that we do well we had talked at one point about since we had so many scenes in cemeteries we had talked about maybe putting some people's names real people's names onto the headstones as a way of remembering them but we ended up deciding not to do that but the idea was still floating around of like how can we somehow remember the people who inspired us in our lives or who were dear to us. Because um, we were actually building a friend at the studio as well. We started to build an ofrenda in the atrium of Pixar, putting a lot of our family photos on it. I imagine we'll continue to do that into the future. But we had this idea of having a kind of a digital ofrenda at the end of the film and having everybody at the studio who wanted to submit photos of uh, a loved one who had inspired them in some way. Everyone was excited about the idea, and it's a you know it's a real beautiful notion. And we we not only you know have our own family, but we also put on the ofrenda some you know some people who we've worked with who were dear to us, who passed away recently, like Don Rickles and Steve Jobs, and we even put Walt Disney on there, and a lot of people that we've worked with here at the studio over the years who unfortunately are no longer with us. I remember at our studio ofrenda. We invited people to put up photos in, in the atrium. And, and I remember thinking, this film is so beautiful. And, you know, we remember these people and we thank them for all the support they've given to us. And hopefully this can be a, a little bit of a thank you to their spirits and an honor to their memories that all the love that came from generations of people culminates in this wonderful place, these beautiful artists and, and a project like this that really touches the world. And, you know, our hope is that once people have seen this film, they want to reconnect with their own history and their own roots and their own stories and maybe yeah, put up an ofrenda of their own. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see people building an ofrenda or, or, or just kind of in their own way, however they want, to take the time to 
remember their family and, and pass down the stories to their kids in the, in the same kind of joyful way that, um, that is done during Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is what our movie is about. So it's really great that we got to end the film on that note. So thank you for listening to our voices drone on for the last hour and a half. We've loved uh, doing this. We love making the film. And um, thank you for uh, listening to our stories. See you guys on the next one. Yeah. Adios. Adios, amigos. <laughs>